Hello, everyone, and welcome to Here's the Plan. This is our new youth-led podcast where we're working out a 10-step plan to pull ourselves out of the mess of the climate and biodiversity crises. I'm James Miller. And I'm Bella Lack. And today on the show, we're talking to Timothée Parikh, a French social scientist and author of Slow Down or Perish. Timothée has a vision for our economy, degrowth. We discussed with him how the temporary downscaling of production and consumption to reduce environmental pressure could just be the economic solution we've been looking for to get ourselves within planetary boundaries. In this conversation, we dive into what economic growth actually is, why we use it, and why Timothée thinks that the world's current prevailing strategy for tackling climate change is doomed to fail. And we look at alternative paradigms that might just work and how we might get there. We hope you enjoy it. And as always, we'll see you on the other side for a debrief. We tend to try and start each podcast episode with an icebreaker. We try to make it slightly related to the topic of conversation. I don't know if you had a better idea, Bella, but what I thought could be could be a fun one. We're talking about degrowing the economy. Bella and I, we generally try and advocate against over-consumerism, I think, in our daily lives. But nobody's perfect. Sometimes we buy things we don't need. Sometimes we buy things that are a bit stupid. And I, and I just wondered, what's the most stupid thing that you've ever bought personally? It's just slightly embarrassing, but too embarrassing. I think the, the stupidest, weirdest thing I've ever bought when, when I was a teenager, I bought around, I think, 18 VHS of Jurassic Park, <laughs> the first film, which was my favorite film as a kid. And I just ended up just gathering like these secondhand tapes, you know, and I started to feel the thrill of accumulating like the one thing. And I just wanted to build a wall of them. And so I started to just go everywhere and try to find them, you know, online and just, and and then I realized that that was a bit silly. Have you still got them? I I still have some of them, but I I got rid of most of them. And in any case, like they're VHS, so I I, I could not even uh, read them anymore. That's really interesting. You went from paleontology and deep past to the futuristic kind of utopian, maybe it's not utopian, maybe that's the wrong word, but I would say utopian thinking that you're engaged with today. Tell me, is utopian the wrong word? No, I actually like utopian as as a word. People tend to use it as an insult, like, oh, it's such utopian thinking, but a utopia is, is a constructed place that is basically so different from reality. And we construct that place that can be used as a vantage point to actually have a critical vision of reality. So if today we live in a society with very high inequalities, we're imagining a society without inequality. And from that society without inequality, we can have a critical reflection towards our own. So for me, utopian thinking is a device to strengthen critical thinking. So it's a good thing. No, 100%, 100%. I think all of this for our listeners, though, they're probably like Bella and I coming at this from a background of relatively little knowledge on the matter. I imagine a lot of the people listening will be people that care a lot about climate change, about biodiversity loss, but aren't economists by training, maybe have a bit of a fuzzy idea about even what something maybe as simple to you as, as economic growth is. Would you just mind kind of outlining for the layman, what is economic growth? Yeah. So imagine it like this, before the 
1930s, before the invention of macroeconomics by John Maynard Keynes and before the development of what we call national accounting, which is like indicators to measure basically how big the economy is, basically there was no notions of economic growth because you could not measure how big an economy was. So that's the interesting thing is to realize that actually economic growth is not like a basic concept that was there all the time. No, it was the first theory of economic growth was actually developed in the mid-1950s. So it's actually fairly recent. Economic growth is the increase in gross domestic product. So that's actually a very simple thing. Gross domestic product is national accounting indicator that was developed by national statisticians in the 1930. That basically sums up everything an economy creates during a period of time into a single monetary number. So that's to avoid, if you were to decide, for example, what has the French economy produced in 2023? I mean, imagine counting this, like, you know, kilometers of, of bike lanes and liters of sodas and whatever, hours of cutting hairs and whatever you can. So now we're just, the, the kind of GDP trick is to just add the value added of these goods and services by looking at the difference between their final price, the price you're paying as a consumer, and the kind of the price of the factors of production so that you're not double counting things. And so this final number in currency, so in, in euros for the case of France, gives you an approximation of the size of that monetary economy. And so economic growth is just when that number, which is the, the big aggregation, the big addition of all the monetary added values during a period is going up. And what we call a recession is when it's going down. And what we call a depression is when it's going down a lot for a long time, usually more than six months. So that's what economic growth is when you describe it like this sounds very abstract. What I like to always remind people is like when you think of economic growth in the concrete is just producing more. So it's an indicator of production. I like sometimes to call it economic agitation, just like if you're looking over an anthill. And let's say, you know, the ants are just very tired and they're not doing much and you don't see much movement. And all of a sudden there's an attack on the anthill. And then you see, wow, all the ants are moving and they're doing much more things. Then you see it's an agitation. Well, GDP measures kind of the speed at which we generate kind of monetized commodities. Let it be just, you know, haircuts we pay for or hours of education we pay for or anything we pay for. So can I ask, you're saying GDP is basically financial aggregation and addition. And I've seen you say this, I've seen quite a few environmentalists now beginning to say that GDP is compatible with a social recession. So financially, we're increasing, but socially, we may not be. Most people aren't naturally malicious and don't want this downturn for the world. So why are we using this indicator, which is so obviously not serving us? Why do you think people are so invested in something which isn't serving humanity? I am so surprised. I'm, I'm still wondering why. I think first, most people don't know what economic growth is, how GDP is calculated, because that's a very niche knowledge. Even most economists I meet so I think if we were to explain everyone that like GDP is a bit of this kind of abstract monetary agitation, and as you said very well, yeah, you can have a case of, let's say, certain what we call defensive sectors or just booming. Let's say there's more and more crime 
in your city and less and less, uh, more and more, you know, hatred and intolerance, then you're going to have a booming of, let's say, guard labor. So more and more like security guards and locks and security cameras and the business of, you know, gates and fences and locks is going to be booming. You have both like economic prosperity, if that is what you define as rising GDP, but you have also degrading social quality because you're losing in all these indicators of well-being. And the other point I wanted to make, which I was very surprised when I was reading Matthias Schmelzer, he's a German historian that has been trying to answer that question, basically, of when did we fall in love with GDP? And Matthias Schmelzer was showing that even in the 50s, politicians, national politicians, when they were presented GDP figures by economists, they were like, nah, what is that indicator? I'm not using that. That's crap. Like, this is so abstract. What we want is full employment. What we want is, you know, for government to be a strong and effective intervention. What we want is a positive balance of payment. You know, that's what matters. What we want is financial stability, real concrete things. And the economists had to explain, no, no, guys, look, look, if you just focus on this one indicator, one indicator only, you will have all the other things. And so that happened through the 50s and 60s. And now I think uh, we have rising voices showing that this indicator is nonsensical. We basically are realizing that for the last decades, we've been constructing a model of development that only had one indicator, and that was an indicator of speed, not of direction. It's like, imagine you're driving your car, terrible example, but imagine you're driving your car, and the only thing you're looking at is the speed. You're not looking at the road. You're looking at the speed and you're like, wow, 80, 85, so cool, 86, 87. It doesn't matter where you're going. It doesn't matter if you arrive. It doesn't matter if you're heading towards the wall. It doesn't matter if you still have oil or fuel. It doesn't matter how many people are in the car. The only thing you rejoice is if you go faster, you're happy. If you go slower, you're unhappy, which like that analogy is, is seems like we've constructed a bit of a stupid software to run an economy, but unfortunately, I think we're still there. Mm. Yeah, it all does sound really silly when you put it like that. <laughs> Definitely. And you mentioned that increase in economic agitation. It's associated generally with increased use of, of materials and resources and energy. And that's really not what we need right now when we're facing multiple planetary crises. But it seems to me that my perception is that all the big institutions, the governments, the plans that we have as a planet for how we're going to get ourselves out of this mess of the ecological crises, the climate crisis. It's centered around this idea of green growth. It's built around the GDP paradigm and saying we, we still need to increase growth in our economies, in the global economy, in our economies as countries. And we can just do that in a way that decreases our impact at the same time as growing our economies. Do you agree? Is that is that the general status quo plan at the high level at the moment? Yeah. So this idea of, of green growth and of green economy and green capitalism, I think right now is still the status quo within political organizations and you know national governments. I think there's been a shift within the scientific community. So maybe 10 years ago, the burden of proof was on those people arguing that there were limits to growth. And basically that, you know, green growth was some kind of myth. Now I think the burden of proof has shifted and has been given to the eco-modernist to be like, look, 
historical experiences, and there are many studies of this, have shown that there's actually a very clear uh, connection between how fast an economy agitates and how much resources it's using, and therefore how much pressures it exerts on surrounding ecosystems. So if you want to show basically that you can run an economy without natural resources, well, you'll have to show us how. But that scientific consensus is very slow, I think, to change that prevailing mindset, which I still hear all the time. We were at a conference at the European Parliament back in May that was the Beyond Growth Conference. And there we were confronted to that status quo in the form of the European Green Deal uh, that was established in 2019 and represented by the European Commission. And, you know, the leaders of the European Commission, a few of them came to speak at the conference and they were all speaking in unison, just repeating that stuff. Like, we can both, you know, phase out fossil fuels, circularize the economy, and still create enormous value by just growing the economy. So they're still on that line of just, we want GDP up and we do not have to compromise GDP for sustainability, which, I mean... The two problematic things with this statement is first, why would you focus on a speedometer? Like, I mean, again, if we accept the fact that GDP is a poor metric of social prosperity, why would you want green growth in the first place? And why not just greening well-being? I think that was the first comment we made at this conference. And the second one, we have to take into account the fact that most ecological crises have a certain timing into them. And we have to take into account also that we've been trying to do stuff in the past. Green growth has been the leading strategy since the end of the 2000s and especially the, the 2010s. So it's very easy to look and be like, okay, what has this achieved? Are we on a path to actually getting back within planetary boundaries? Well, the answer is no. You know, the date of the planetary boundaries was published a few weeks ago and is telling us the same story, like things are getting worse. So... There's here also a bit of, of uh, scientific realism to be had, to be guys like that discourse more and more, it's looking like a fable. It's a wishful story. So the, the utopian ideal is interesting because it's very subjective. And we've spoken to every single person on this podcast who's had a different ideal for what that utopia would look like. Many of the pathways to get to theirs involve innovation. And I was wondering if you see degrowth as compatible with innovation or not? Completely. The way I see it is that degrowth is acting at an earlier phase. So if we take the IPCC typology of avoid, shift, and improve, you know, in terms of mobility, whatever kilometers of transport you can avoid, because perhaps instead of buying stuff from far, you buy things locally. So that's kilometers you won't have to green. You won't have to find an innovation to make them greener because they just disappear. And, you know, the most sustainable natural resource is the one we can afford to not use. So all the kilometers we cannot just avoid. Some of them we can shift. Oh, perhaps instead, if I really need to go to Paris tomorrow, instead of flying, I'll take a train. I could not avoid, but I can at least shift. And let's say if I cannot take a train because I'm going to New York or something like this, then then your only solution is to improve. If you cannot avoid and shift, and that's the eco-innovation, eco-efficiency task of, you know, if I do have to use a plane, let's make sure that that plane is just emitting the least amount possible. So for me, I don't see them in conflict. 
I think they give us like a, a broader toolbox to do what I think people on both sides want to do, to see the total ecological footprint of countries that emit the most like reduced as fast as possible. Just to take a step back, because I know some of the people that will be listening, I can anticipate that some of them may be more interested to know a little bit more behind why you think that green growth couldn't work. I'm just interested from what you said, is it that you think physically it's an impossibility, that it's maybe it is a possibility physically, but based on what we've tried so far, it's unrealistic to think it would ever happen. And I know a lot of people will probably be thinking in their heads, I'm pretty sure the British economy has grown at the same time as reducing carbon dioxide emissions. Isn't that an example? Absolutely. So the, the question is always greening what exactly? Is it possible to decouple economic growth from greenhouse gas emissions? The answer is yes, it's easy. You just need to stop using fossil fuels and you just need you know, to stop deforest and, and methane emissions. And so you, you can easily target other sources of greenhouse gas emissions. You make sure to stop doing these and you run your economy on something else. So some economies, and the UK has been leading the pack, have tried to do these transitions. Where they have failed is that basically they've not reduced greenhouse gases enough. Basically, they've invested a lot on shifting and improving, but they've not dared to avoid many things. And so they've reduced emissions, but at a pace that is too small to achieve the Paris Agreement, a little less to achieve the Paris Agreement in the context of preserving part of the carbon budget from the development of the global south, so including equity issues. So here, on the issues of decarbonizing economic growth, we are rather, we're not on a theoretical impossibility, we're rather on a implausibility. To be like, is that very likely that right now all rich countries will manage to just increase the pace at which they decarbonize by a factor of 10? That's the number from the Vogel and Hickel studies green growth happening from a month ago. It's unlikely. All the scenarios we have show us that it's unlikely. Then when we talk about this, any sustainability scientist will tell us, okay, guys, you're talking about carbon, but you know, carbon is one color in the Rubik's Cube. We have others, biospheric integrity, including biodiversity loss, you know, ocean acidification, land use change, deforestation, material footprint extraction, you know, all kinds of pollutions. We need to solve the Rubik's Cube at one. And that's the thing that I think is theoretically impossible, is to basically produce and consume more while reducing this total ecological footprint. And there's several ways of, of understanding why. There's the empirical way. We can look at all economies, including UK. You know, no economy in the world has managed to reduce that total ecological footprint while just producing and consuming more. And if you ask yourself why, it kind of makes sense. I always just dare people to think about a single economic activity that doesn't require natural resources. And then, you you know, anything, even like the most dematerialized service, like what we're doing right now. I mean, we've been eating today. That was food. You know, we're wearing clothes. That's materials. We're hosted in a house using a mic, electricity. You can see even for an immaterial service, there's stuff like this. If we want to do more of that, the material infrastructure we're going to be, be using needs to follow up that kind of pace. Yeah, for certain sector certain product for a certain time, you can have like efficiency gains and maybe you find a way of just recording twice more podcasts with the same amount of food and energy and stuff because you found a very smart way. But how can you just keep doing this 
forever. So that that's my my take on that. When you bring these two together, the kind of theoretical impossibility of basically emancipating the economy fully from nature, which sounds a bit like a silly goal when you think about it. Only an economist could have thought of that. I think we realize that the economy, for better or for worse, is just ontologically embedded within biophysical reality. I mean, we are animals or cells embedded within earth systems without which there would be just no economy or no society whatsoever. So when we reconcile with that view, we we realize that the pace of growth, let's say agitation, whatever we can do within human societies, will always more or less be dependent on you know what nature can give us. And of course, we have technological progress and social technical progress that allow us to extend the boundaries so we can do a bit more and do a bit less depending on context. But I don't think these will allow us at any point to completely emancipate. I think we've seen, I mean, you're talking about emancipation and you'll definitely know that one of the best ways to dismantle a system isn't just knocking away at something. It's also trying to create something new for people to move towards. And there are terms thrown around zero growth, post-growth, steady state economy. For you, what are you envisioning? What sort of future are you packaging to people and saying, this is what we can move towards? So in, in my work, I make the difference between degrowth as this kind of transition term. So the macroeconomic diet that high-income countries will have to go through if they want to get back within planetary boundaries. And most importantly, if they want to get back within planetary boundaries fast so that other countries in the world have their shot to develop their productive capacities. That's also very important. But then I use the concept of post-growth and steady-state economy and even post-capitalism in general to describe this kind of like what happens after the diet. And I like to start from concrete experience of like the concept of degrowth emerged in France in 2002 within anti-advertisement movements. And I think advertising for me has always been a good reminder of, of, of the unpleasant experiences of capitalism. When you start thinking about all the time we waste as a society on just creating this mutually reinforcing incentives for production and consumption. Imagine all of the geniuses that come out of business school or communication school or, or advertising school that are being forced to just write this absolutely nonsensically stupid like TV ads for you know nuggets or, or, or SUVs. And then then we force others to be exposed to them all day long, even though like it's 0.1% of them that actually will just buy nuggets or SUV. So we subject ourselves to this kind of mass sensual uh, assault every day just for the sake of somehow consuming more so that companies can keep producing more so that we have this kind of growth economy running. The emancipation comes from like, look, but if we have simplified our needs, Meanings that actually with a smaller levels of production, we can satisfy the needs of all of the population. Then the rat race kind of stops. We don't need to just, you know, find ways of always producing more and always finding more resources and always investing more. We can just switch from a quantity-based expansion system to a quality-based maintenance system to be okay. Now we're in the sweet spot. The goal is to look on, you know, Agility, resilience, security, sovereignty, 
autonomy, not just trying to just do more stuff. And I think these are just very deep consequences on our society function. Just my favorite example is working time. So, I mean, growth-based capitalism requires somehow hours of time to be invested in whatever activity is going to be lucrative and creating these kind of stuff that we count in GDP. And these hours, where are they to be found? Because we have a finite number of hours, right? 24 hours a day. So they are found in the non-monetary economy. They're the hours of you're just with your friends or taking care of your family, of doing podcasts at home or doing whatever you're doing. They're the kind of like temporal capital that capitalism draws on. And that's a pressure. That's a pressure that manifests itself in individual burnout when you're working too much, when capitalism is actually over-exploiting your temporal capital, just like a fishery, just like an ecosystem that collapses, an individual can collapse for burnout. A community can also collapse when you take all the hours that were invested in, let's say, political activity, childcare, elderly care, uh, community activities, volunteer work. You take all of these hours and you transform them into you know, selling machetos at Starbucks or doing whatever, just Amazon delivery, and then you collapse your society. So I think imagining an economy that will be in a steady state can allow us to open that door to be like, wow, we will actually liberate a lot of our hours to enrich a part of life that even though has no euros in them is absolutely fundamental for well-being. Yeah. When you put it like that, it sounds like such a healthier way for a society to function, even in the absence of, of the ecological pressures. But also I can imagine... I mean, you said that that this idea of GDP, and it was kind of only really brought in as a metric in the 1930s, did you say? And I'm just trying to think practically, getting from where we are now to a steady state economy, doing that degrowth journey on the process, what kind of scale of change are we talking about in practicality to the way that our society functions is it reversing at least a century of, of paradigms and norms, maybe more? Is it going to involve rewriting a lot of laws, differences in the way that businesses function at a very basic level? Can you give us an idea of what kind of scale of overhaul this would require? I mean, so first, if we want to give an order of magnitude of a country like France, you know, started to overreach is uh, planetary boundaries end of the 60s, 70s. So by physically getting back to the size of the economy back then, or actually even uh, probably bigger because we have 50 years of technological progress. So a lot of improve and shift that will allow us to have a bigger economy that back then with a lower footprint. But then that gives you a bit of a, of a direction. I, I wish every country would actually nominate a kind of, okay, those are our national boundaries and we are overshooting each national boundaries by X in the same way that we've tried to do for the Paris Agreement and nationally determined contribution. So you do this for everything. And of course, there's an equity discussions to make sure that each got like proportional responsibility accounting for historical responsibility and everything. And then you're like, okay, we are using three times what we should be using. And so now we're going to decrease. We'll have to adapt to that cap. It's a meta-economic cap. It's something that cannot be breached you cannot pay your way out of the cap. And once you do this, I think we realize that you don't have to change like every single thing we've constructed within the economy. Just imagine like this, a world where actually we value sustainability more than lucrativity. And so the real limiting factor are about resources. 
So for example, let's say you're earning 2,000 euros a month, but you're spending 4,000 euros a month. Like after a couple of months, I think your banker is going to call you. They're going to tell you like, <laughs> uh, well, there's that James Bella, there's a little problem about your lifestyle and uh, something is going to happen. If you keep doing this, the bank will actually expropriate you from everything you own. So imagine if we had the same kind of hard constraint, but on biophysical limits. So a company that will overreach its limits would get this kind of legal institution that represent the interest of ecosystems calling being, you are an overshoot, you're encroaching on the ecological capital of someone else, either in the future, either in non-human, either in the global south, either in this economy. This is an illegal breach. And if you do not manage to get back within the boundary, something will happen and you will be expropriated from the infrastructure you're using. We find it completely valid when we do it for euros. We don't think it's some kind of dictatorian move. No, that happens all the time. And if we have the hard constraint, then that means we can keep actually some of the institutions in place. You know, companies, they can still some have some degree of competition to some extent. We can still have a variety of ways of producing small private companies, larger cooperatives. We can still have, you know, different modes of allocation, can be market exchange with money, can be just reciprocity, a repartition in, in, in kind of like gift economies. We can have all you want. If you don't overreach the cap, then you're good. So that's, I think right now, if we could do one thing, that would be kind of enforcing like these kind of caps and just adapting the system to that thing. That's a really interesting answer. And I've, off the back of that, I've thought of maybe maybe an interesting question, maybe a silly one, we'll see. But I am thinking, if you were a government, say, and you were bought into this idea, this was something you thought it would be good to do, would a single government be able to lead the way and do this itself? Or would it require some kind of globally binding treaty that has everyone as part of it? And I say this for like two things that I'm thinking of here. One, if you were to do this, for example, in the UK or France, would companies domiciled there, would they decide to up sticks and move somewhere else where they could continue to keep growing and keep providing more money for their shareholders, even if that's unsustainable? And two, could this lead to power imbalances if, for example, we were to slow down, degrow our economy and China, Russia, they were to continue to try and pursue unending growth? What do you think? I mean, the first thing on on companies kind of leaving the country, what's very good with uh, natural resource extraction is that you cannot delocalize it. There is an ability for, for certain countries to actually just sanctuarize and protect and ground, like literally ground these resources, keep them in, in the ground. And then, yeah, there the can be a capital flight of companies investing in other countries that are, let's say, less strict, that will try to attract investment to extract more. And that's where I think we need international coordination. I mean, we've seen this within the United Nations. I mean, with the Paris Agreement, as an economist that is being very naive about geopolitics, you know, I'm dreaming of, we have the World Bank, which is, is an interesting institution when you think about it. It's a bank for the world, but just imagine if we had like the equivalent, but again, a global institution representing nature in that way, that where we can allow that institutions to become legal owners of resources in different countries, but to be above them. A bit like, you know, we have the UNESCO World Heritage Site. 
And if a country decides just because it needs money uh, to pay for something to just, you know, dig a bit more for oil, then that company can be, no, you don't have a legal entitlement to do this, but we do understand your dependency towards exporting oil. We do understand, you know, that can be like the situation of Venezuela a few years ago. And so therefore we're going to actually give you the money instead of you selling the oil to get the money. We give you directly the money as a kind of shareholders of that very resource. And I, I think that, that system is it, not utopian in the way of like central banks are already doing it. Like that's one way of injecting money into the economy. So why could we not just inject money into the economy like this to substitute for extraction of natural resources? And of course, injecting money into the economy, there would be also a reverse mechanism to kind of reabsorb money by progressive taxation. So there, there's this dual aspect always to take into account of just how to compensate the people that are suffering from, you know, stopping to extract natural resources and how to kind of uh, compensate also from the uh, huge environmental inequalities. So here I'm, I'm just going completely wild. So don't take this too seriously, but I think these examples, what we're discussing now is exactly the power of utopian thinking of just being like, okay, let's set on the table some crazy rules no one has heard of, and let's discuss this and just do some scenarios. I've avoided a bit your questions about geopolitical power shift because I, I feel very incompetent as, as a scientist to answer this. The, the, the honest answer is that I, I don't know. I find this very scary, this geopolitical conundrum, which is adding another layer of complexity to the Rubik's Cube we were already describing. The only kind of feeling I have about it and that's, let's say, a lucky aspect of that transition is that today, the countries which should reduce their ecological footprint the fastest are also the countries that have gathered more power over the years. So they're old imperialist colonial economies. And so them reducing power will, yes, relatively empower other countries, but you could say that is just rightly so because the power of this huge industrial imperial economy has been built on appropriation and exploitation of other countries in the global South. But you are rightly referring to a scenario where, let's say, some global power decide to do so, but there is one global power, let's say Russia, that'd be like, okay, guys, I'm not doing your thing, and I'm going to keep all the power you're giving away. So here, this is why we need to have coordination and to make sure there is a rightful transfer of power that by giving away power in these imperial countries, we actually empower the global South and we do not let you know, a, a sneaky global player just feed on that power to continue an, an, another kind of imperialist expansion. I have a thousand more questions. I think we need to wrap up. I think we do. But is it okay if I ask one more question before the wrap up question? Again, I also have like a thousand questions. There's the other side of this is the side that Bella and I work on and that you do a lot of as well, Timothy. It's the communication side is how do we sell this, especially in the circumstance that we are right now, especially in the UK, where it's not financially easy times. And I think any government that were to step in and advocate that we should be pursuing a degrowth strategy right now wouldn't do very well. And generally, in, in with what we're seeing across Europe, I think a lot of the forces that are looking to oppose any kind of green policies are pushing against it with the kind of rhetoric that's saying, this is opposing economic progress, it's going to make things harder for you. And the main defence that politicians are holding up in defence of that 
is to say, no, we can. We can do green growth. This is an opportunity for growing the economy. And so strategically, this this is going to be quite difficult, I think. Do you think it's possible to get like to an extent until we manage to build up the political capital to move towards a, a, a degrowth economy, to get some short-term wins with green growth until that happens? And B, how do you think we can persuade politicians and the public to make this bigger change? That's interesting. You know, I might say something I've never said before, uh, but when you say it like this, I think, yeah, the, the one value of the green growth discourse is if that brings climate skeptics or people that really don't care at all about the environment to actually being like, okay, right, we need to focus on greening growth. Like that's better than just boosting growth without the green. So Yes, I would be willing to accept that in terms of communication, that can be a strategy to bring people to the first step. And the problem is that, like, yeah, you talked about like time of gathering, like um, the political capital. And my thing is, I, I find that actually the post-growth discourse, if explained pedagogically, old more more power. I find it more power because economic growth is, it doesn't address inequality, for example. It does not address North-South relation and other kind of social deleterious effects of capitalism. So I think it leaves out a lot of concern that people, and therefore the politician representing people, might worry about. So I feel it's actually dumping down sustainability. And if we use our shot right now at raising environmental awareness to just be like, okay, guys, what we need to invest or hope is green growth, then people are just going to grab into this. And then they're going to be, oh, wait, well, you said it was about green growth, but now you say it's about sufficiency. Like, what did you say? What did you say was about sufficiency in the first place? Do you think we're stupid? Do you, th- you know, so I, I tend as a scientist to be very wor- like wary of just like people management and be like, you know, they need to be given truth in small steps to adapt to it. The the line of reasoning I've been following right now, and, and maybe I'll be proven wrong in the future in terms of strategies, to, to just try to tell things as they are. Then people, they can decide to be like, you know what, I understand the situation, but all things considered, I'm not ready to give up that. And I can hear this. I'm like, fine. And some people can organize in parties that defend the narrative of like, we are not ready to give up the cause. We want to keep it. And then that's fine if you assume it. But you don't want to develop this kind of false narrative or we're keeping up the cars, but we're also reaching carbon neutrality because that's scientifically false. Sorry, I'm giving very long answers. I feel I'm the one responsible for, for overshooting our temporal capital here. No, no, it's your time. I think we're more worried about, but yeah, sorry, go on, Bella. No, I, I have a lot more questions. I remember when you gave your speech in Paris a few months ago, I was sitting in the audience writing down question after question, and I'm happy I've just had the opportunity to ask a few of them. James and I ask at the end of every episode what you would ask from governments, from businesses, and from people at home. So what concrete advice and solutions can people go away and implement in their lives and in society and in their businesses? Okay. So if you're a member of government, I would say every time you hear or see economic growth in a discussion or in an actual, you know, governmental report try to replace it with another word. That's very concrete. Like, let's phase out economic growth. It's abstract. Focus on what you want to focus. If you mean like you want to increase life expectancy, healthcare quality, if you want to build houses, if you want to build bike lanes, just design a policy that does that. 
But let's just do not rely on the kind of misty concept of economic growth anyway. And that involves also forgetting the recipe to calculate GDP, which is my little individual fantasy. I, I dream of a world where actually tomorrow, you know, everyone has lost the recipe and we're like, God damn it, where did I put the recipe to calculate GDP? And if we don't have the recipe anymore, it means we're forced to design a new indicator of performance because otherwise we're just walking in the dark. And certain countries that have done so, like New Zealand with this well-being budget, you know, a very good example of how whatever indicators we create is all the time 100% better than these kind of speedometer we had from the 1930s. If you're a company, I'll be demanding something very difficult to do is to give away the profit motive. It's actually very easy to do. So it's a legal framework. So whatever your company is, if it's a for-profit legal framework, you change it to a not-for-profit framework. That means that legally, whatever your activity is generating as profit cannot be appropriated by individuals. It means you're tying whatever profit, potential profit you could be making to the mission of your company. And that's actually a security because if you're doing this, it means you're protecting yourself from financial incentives. You're protecting yourself from the moment where you will have two voices in the room, one telling you, we have to shut down this coal mine because otherwise we are cooking our species to death. And then someone be like, yeah, but I mean, that's very lucrative, so it'll make you rich. And then you're like, I don't know what to do. If you're a not-for-profit company, that choice is like, no, it's like you're always acting around a social mission. So it gives you agility as a company to approach like certain social ecological tasks. And it protects you from this kind of uh, fast and furious growth at all costs. If you're an individual, here we're going to go into a more like Socratic reflection about our lifestyles, is to start putting this, this pair of glasses that show you the biophysical causes and consequences of your lifestyle. As I said, everything we do is embedded within ecosystems. And so when we do certain things, we have today as individuals a certain responsibility in critical thinking. Like, why am I doing this? Why am I buying an SUV? I live in Paris. It's flat as, like, there's not a single piece of dirt in Paris. Why am I buying something that could actually cross a desert? Then you realize, oh, I'm buying this because well, I've been seeing ads for the last 10 years of my life every day that has been trying to sell me the idea that SUV is some kind of sign of success. But I can decide, and that's actually how I regain autonomy over my own desires to be, but that's not what I consider to be success. Actually, for me, success is I want to be a good singer, a good you know, a family member, a good friend, a good partner, a good scientist, or whatever you want. So these kind of little moments of critical reflection as individuals, they are very powerful because they activate us. And then once we're activated, we start actively to resist certain patterns of the systems. And we regain this kind of critical autonomy. And then we organize ourselves in groups. So politically, then we can become a real force for change in that system. So I'm sorry if that was a bit abstract, but that's what I would tell to these uh, three levels. No, that was fantastic. Can I ask one more, less highbrow question? Do you have a pie tattoo on your arm? <laughs> yes, I, I do have a pie tattoo on my arm. <laughs> I thought it was pie. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. 
so Bella, this was a fantastic suggestion of yours for a guest and I think a really important piece of the puzzle that I'm so glad we brought in because uh, a lot of the other solutions that we've been uh, looking at during this podcast series have all been fitting within that current paradigm of economic growth, really. And if this is simply not enough to do what we need to do, I think it would be a really critical omission if we fail to recognise that right from the start. Mm. How did you find that discussion? I mean, he's so engaging. I remember watching him speak and in an interview, I would say even more engaging because he really does listen to and respond to the questions. I think something interesting, which I went in thinking GDP is a purely bad indicator. And I'm actually going to use a quote from Kate Rayworth I found, who we'll discuss later, I think. And she said, the conundrum is that no country has ever ended human deprivation without a growing economy, and no country has ever ended ecological degradation with one. So in a way, my perception of GDP, the problem is that it doesn't account for certain things, especially ecological degradation that need to be accounted for. And so we need another measure. Yeah. I mean, I think what he was pointing towards is that it might be very difficult to think of one single metric. And I know a number of alternative metrics have been proposed. Things like Bhutan has a national happiness index that it uses in its policymaking. It's come up with a number of key indicators for different variables that contribute to human well-being. And it tries to measure the happiness of its population and uh, assess all of its policies against that, which is a really interesting, interesting concept. Yeah. And in Amsterdam, they're using Kate Rayworth's donut model, which I think, I'm not sure this this is quite a niche reference because we're within the environmental sphere or whether donut economics is something quite widespread now. But I know that it has grown massively and exploded in the last few years. And for those people that don't know what it is, could you explain what it is? So the donut model was proposed by Kate Rayworth, who's a British economist. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's the model in a in a donut shape and there's an ecological ceiling and there's kind of a hole in the middle and if we breach uh planetary boundaries we're extending into that ecological ceiling and in the middle there's all the different aspects of sort of social degradation if that is the word that we don't want to go into and we want to stay within the donut it's quite conceptual so if you want to have a shot at describing it as well no i think i think your description was good but what it's also done for me I think, is that it's painted a really clear picture of why equity is so important in environmentalism today. Because as you described, there's an outer rim to the donut, which shows our planetary boundaries, the ecological limits, which if we transgress them, that puts us in an, an unsafe operating space that might destabilize the Earth system. Um, and there's the, the social floor of those those minimum standards of human well-being indicators that we also need to meet so that everyone has the opportunity to have a, a healthy and happy life. And right now, we are both at a global level transgressing many of the planetary boundaries, putting us in a very dangerous place. But also millions of people are falling beneath that social floor of the inner ring. And that's really reflective of the vast inequality that we have in the world, the fact that we're both consuming too much and failing to meet everyone's basic needs. Kate proposes that the donut, we've strayed a bit from Timothy, but I think it's important because they do fit together. And this donut, which Kate calls a safe and just space, can be created. And I think if we're looking at it on a scale 
degrowth is the first step because there has to be a certain level of degrowth of emissions reductions, an intense lowering of production before we can create an economy which is regenerative and distributive and is flourishing. And it, it will be a step-by-step process. And Amsterdam took one of the first steps in 2020, I think it was during lockdown, where they implemented a target of 100% reusage of raw materials. I know it's still in progress. There, there are several different ways they're doing it, but lots of businesses are taking that overarching vision into account. So it's kind of this goes back to this thing, which many guests have discussed, which is about the story of a society. And Amsterdam have taken the donut model and the degrowth concept and lots of then individuals and businesses implementing that story and changing how they operate. Yes. Yeah. And I think it would be really amazing. And perhaps what we need to do is to get governments internationally to aim for exactly the same thing, to aim for that safe and just space between our ecological limits and and that basic social floor of, of human needs. But it's tricky for me, at least, to imagine how that might happen. I think these these discussions would be really tricky, especially because of that equity and justice element. Because I guess as with climate change, you'd need to work out firstly, like, I mean, who you even attribute resource use to in a world of global supply chains. Is it the people in the countries harvesting the materials? Is it the people using them at the other end? You'd have to convince many bigger, wealthy, developed countries, as we discussed in the episode, to pursue degrowth, to return back within ecological limits. And you'd have to have discussions about how fast they should do that. There'd be discussions about social justice, about the moral obligation of wealthier countries, the developed countries, to go further and shrink their economies a little further to give developing countries the wiggle room to use more resources so that they can meet those basic social needs. And I just, I don't know about you, Bella, but I just really struggle to see those kinds of discussions happening in today's social and political climate. I mean, I think when we're talking about equity and a social transition, they're conversations which have to be had within any environmental transition discussion. So the fact that it's about degrowth doesn't necessarily change that. I mean, I guess we'll see that in practice at COP and see whether our kind of cynicism is proved right or not. And hopefully it won't be. And hopefully equity will be taken into account. And the conversations have to happen, I think, at many different levels, at individuals, community, business levels. Maybe, as you say, for example, as with Amsterdam, maybe the first step is to get this this framework of thinking adopted at a city level and see how that works. Just as with our episode with Victoria, cities are leading the charge in a lot of ways with climate change and being more progressive and adopting bolder policies. And uh, and maybe this is the, the place to try this out as a, as a proof of concept. I guess we can look at that at a city level because it will be attracting tourists and citizens within the city who will then go back home and they may be business owners, they may be heads of schools, politicians, and then they'll take that back and take that concept back to their own work and their own lives. I think, as always, it has to start in a community, whether that be a city or a smaller community, because we've definitely learned that through our conversations, that change does start in pockets and then spread outwards. 100%, 100%. I think on my side, there was just one more thing that I wanted to um, bring up, which is an interesting study that I read a while ago, actually, as part of my degree. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But it has really interesting implications for the um, interaction that Timothée mentioned between degrowth and the idea of innovation and 
trying to decouple growth from environmental impacts. But basically, this study tried to downscale the planetary boundaries for 150 countries around the world, more than 150 countries around the world. And they did that, you know, based on an equal per capita share of the resources, looking at the number of people in each country. And they found that if they did this, very few countries around the world, firstly, remained within all of the planetary boundaries. Only three countries achieved all of those minimum social thresholds outlined by the UN. And they looked at correlations between the social variables and the resource use. And they found that a lot of these social indicators are all very tightly coupled to resource use. Some of the indicators, things like equality and democratic quality, not a single country in the world has been able to meet what's deemed a sufficient standard in those without transgressing planetary boundaries, which is quite depressing because it it kind of it carries an implication that there is no known way to meet that social need within planetary boundaries for our current population size. We just we don't know how we're going to do it. So this is going to require us to be very clever. It means that we're going to um, have to firstly restructure systems to provide for all people more efficiently and more equitably. But for these goals, which we have no idea how to meet within planetary boundaries yet, we need to get better at providing those without using as many resources. And that is where that dematerialization comes in. That's where we need to look at providing the same service using fewer resources. It needs innovation and it needs a lot of brains. So I guess that kind of shows that that's a necessary bit of the puzzle alongside the degrowth bit. Yeah, definitely. I think Timothée's perspective on green growth as being a macroeconomic form of greenwashing is interesting. So we need to be aware of green growth and greenwashing as always. And the other thing that Timothée said about decoupling, which I think sums it up perfectly, is that the economy is ontologically embedded within a biophysical reality. And there's no way that we can create a distinction between the economy and the environment. And we should keep that in mind in every conversation about decoupling. That's a change in perception, I guess. Yeah, I think it'd be really interesting for an episode, actually, to get a business leader in and to see if even, you know, the business leaders in some of what we consider to be the most climate ambitious companies in the world, whether this is something that they're thinking about or talking about at all. But anyway, we should move on because we've already used up a lot of time onto takeaways, actionable takeaways, things that people can do at home. Do you have any ideas, Bella? I think we talked a lot just now about cities as hubs for change and communities as hubs for change. And I think something people could do, no matter who you are, because everyone is part of a community, is start to think about how we can embed the degrowth concept, but also the donut framework at a local level. Look into your own communities, your own business, your own school or wherever you are at the moment and see how you can implement these models into those systems. What do you think, James? Yeah, I think I think that's a really good idea. I also think we should all not just put on our carbon goggles all day and think about climate change without thinking about any of the other problems as well, because we do have other really pressing impacts on our planet that are similarly threatening to us. And so I think it'd be great if whenever institutions and businesses are coming up with plans to decarbonize or to meet biodiversity goals, that they actually, they think holistically about all of these problems that we're facing. Look at the planetary boundaries framework to see 
all the other issues they should take into account of freshwater use and pesticides and herbicides and novel entities and all sorts so that we can make sure that in tackling one of these problems we're not inadvertently contributing to the others and that we actually have a proper integrated approach fantastic well thank you so much everyone for listening it's been a really great episode and i hope you've enjoyed it if you'd like to support our podcast there are several ways that you can do that firstly it would be great if you could leave us a five-star review on spotify and on apple Podcasts. if you're on apple podcast leaving us a review in words is actually even better and really helps us boost our podcast up the rankings and if you really want to help us, you can give us a small donation on coffee.com. And there's a link to that in the show notes. And next week, you can join us for our final episode of Here's the Plan, where James and I are going to discuss the final step of our blueprint to save Earth and ourselves. And we're going to look back over everything we've learned and see how it all fits together. I'm looking forward to it. And I think it should be a really exciting episode. See you next time. Bye. Bye bye.